Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans, in conversation with the great Professor Claudia Golden, Professor of Economics at Harvard University. We are discussing her monumental new book, Career and Family, Women's Century-Long Journey Towards Equity. Claudia, welcome. I am delighted to be here, Alice. Okay, let us plunge headfirst into the patriarchy. My first question, men dominate business leadership. To what extent do you think this is due to testosterone, pumping then up to take bigger risks and then thrive in business? Well, certainly that can be the case. And we know that uh, there are various cohorts. So many of the leaders are in their 60s and 70s and they came up in in various ways uh, and there is a pipeline, but it is the case. There is absolutely no question that women often step back so that within their families, their uh, husbands, to the extent that they're in heterosexual unions, step forward and they step back because they need to take, someone needs to take care of the kids. So how much do you think this is due to biology as opposed to socially constructed gender roles that women step back, that women choose to take back, to step back and do the school run? Well, socially constructed gender norms come from something that happened long ago. So biology has got to be in there somewhere. But the fact that they keep on getting replicated, all that they're diminishing. And we know that from many different types of surveys of of social norms. We know that from the fact that women do take on occupations and professions that they didn't before. But it's clearly the case that when a decision has to be made within the couple, that women disproportionately are the ones who step back. That doesn't mean that they're not, you know, in, um, high power professions, that doesn't mean that they don't have a sense of identity in, in that uh, in that work, but it does mean that for some time they step back and many of them pay the price later. Yes. So though but I, 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 yeah, I might sorry. also add that paying the price for your career also means getting the great joys and pleasures of being around your kids. And so one person's gain is often the other person's loss. So Fathers uh, often in surveys say, I wish I could have spent more time with my kids. And if we look at grandparents, how many grandparents, how many people do you know? I know a lot of grandparents, dads who say, I am spending so much time with my grandkids because I didn't with my kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's another question. How much of the gender pay gap stems from women's choices to step back? as opposed to discrimination? Well, uh, it's a difficult calculation. There are those. uh, There's a review piece recently that goes through, you know, all the best studies of of what we think of as real discrimination, um, differences in earnings, and the numbers are maybe around 20, 25% maybe less than that. So what is the 25% is real discrimination? Would be what might be accounted for 
by managerial bias. Or How do we work women... that out? How do we calculate discrimination? What do you think is a good method for working it out? Well, it, 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 one one has to, you know, the, the devil is in the details here and one has to go through each of these papers and they're each very special papers. Each one has its pluses and its minuses, but this is a review piece going through all the possibilities. Yeah. So uh, for, first of all, we, we, we know what's the residual and we call that sort of wage discrimination, but that residual, some of it is due to actual uh, bias. And so, so there are audit studies, right? So we know from audit studies, um, some information about actual bias. We know if we give out two resumes that are identical, uh, but are different in terms of the name, one has a distinctively black name, one has a distinctively white name, one is a male, one is a female, one is Hispanic, one is not. So some of the studies use audit studies. Yeah. And how much of women choosing to step back do you think reflects their own preferences to be a mother as compared to discrimination against mothers, regardless of their productivity? You know, uh, Shelley Coral has a paper suggesting that even when mothers are equally productive, employers may still presume them less reliable, less uh, less productive. So prefer not to hire them, prefer not to promote them. Clearly, some of it is uh, is due to that. And and that uh, could be raised as a, uh, you know, as a classic discrimination case. But the fact that we have event studies, I think that the. that the best evidence is in event studies that uh, directly after a birth or a marriage, and this is independent of the country, there's uh, some excellent work by uh, Henrik Clevin and, and various co-authors, and many others who do event studies, that subsequent to a birth, there's a, an initial very, very large decrease in hours then uh, a recovery, but the earnings gap remains for a fairly long time. So, um, so it certainly looks as if there is something at that point, and not as if it's something that um, you know develops sometime later when employers figure out this is the person I shouldn't give the the big clients to. However, however. There's also uh, a form of what we consider, and, and we, we deal with this all the time, sexist paternalism. Well, you know, she just had a kid. We shouldn't ask her to do something. No, ask her and let her decide. Here's another question. How do you think we should conceptualize discrimination? Because on the one hand, we could look at an individual characteristics and individual choices. But to some extent, I wonder that there is bias built into our workplaces that makes it very difficult to be a mother. So when women choose more flexible work, isn't that itself a result of discrimination that male majority workplaces and male management refuse it, refuse to make their workplaces more female friendly? Or um, more friendly period. I mean, there are a lot of workplaces. Uh, uh, Silicon Valley is a very good example 
where, you know, at some moment in the day, everyone takes their their mountain bike out and says, let's just, you know, hit the hills. So there are certain workplaces and some of them are considered to be toxic in various other ways, which have built in flexibility and the flexibility is inherent to the product that the degree to which you don't have a client breathing down your neck, you can head to the hills in your mountain bike. But when the client is breathing down your neck, then those are the workplaces that are inherently less flexible and therefore they're worse for individuals who value the flexibility. Let me step back a bit and say that it's not flexibility per se, it's the cost of flexibility. So I can take any job and make it flexible and pay it a pittance. So the question is, if you make it flexible, how much is it worth? And this gets to um, what is going to be happening soon with travel. So we, we have decided that we can't, you know, for a while we couldn't travel to Japan or to Beijing or to Germany or to Paris. And uh, firms, uh, you know, doing, you know, uh, you know, big business were writing contracts, making handshakes over Zoom the same way we're meeting. And we have to see whether, and it appears as if firms have realized that the cost of flexibility has really gone down. And so these jobs that because of the nature of the job were not good for women with children or not good for any parent with children or with any care responsibilities or any reason to be home in the evening or on the weekend, these are going to be accessible. Right. And this is the core argument of your book that women are choosing flexible work, whereas it's greedy work with longer hours that is especially well-paid. And that's a key part of the gender pay gap. Whereas pharmacy, due to organizational, commercial, and technological shifts, job pharmacists are now substitutable and women can work part-time with no massive loss in pay. So they're still earning a great deal, despite it being flexible. That's, That's the core argument, right? And so here's a question. And, and there are various ways of having flexibility. So you use the word substitution, which is an important word that we can think about. But there's also not just substitution between people. So if I have to um, do something, I would call in my perfect substitute, who happens to be my husband, who's more than perfect. <laughs> and but But there's also what I just mentioned about travel. So that's actually changing the nature of the client professional relationship. And so then in your book, you look across different professions and you ask a bunch of questions like how times are there strict deadlines? How much flexibility is there? And you find surprisingly and interestingly that many STEM professions on paper actually look rather good for motherhood. They're quite flexible. Absolutely. Just as I said before, let's just get on our mountain back and head for the hills. (laughs) But then the curious thing, the curious thing 
is that these STEM professions are hemorrhaging women. So a small minority, a minority of women go into these sectors. And then even if they qualify, even if they join those sectors, they're especially likely to leave. And I wonder what is your opinion? What is your view of why that's happening? Because they sound great for mothers and yet they're leaving. So what's going wrong? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I have to look at the data on mm. them leaving, um, but, um, and at what moment they're leaving, but, but by and large, many of them, I mean, the biological sciences is in this, it's a very, very large part of the STEM field. And, it is uh, right now um, more than 50% female in terms of PhDs. And we, we see them possibly leaving academia, but not leaving uh, the, the area per se. <clears throat> However, you ask a very, very good question that may go to uh, explain differences in CS, computer science or engineering. And there um, may be a different culture and that different culture in my own field of economics. And that different culture may be one that women see as less friendly. Uh, they may see the, what they're studying to be less human, less uh, having to do with the well-being of society. But leaving it is often not entering it in terms of college, leaving it may be entering college saying, I'm going to be an engineer and then not being an engineer. But once one has a, a biology degree, for example, uh, the fraction who are staying in is pretty high. And But I, as I said, it depends upon where they're working. And once again, there is extremely good research on that that we can look at. I was recently reading uh, a comparative paper of undergraduate classrooms in life sciences, that is biology and physical sciences. And yes, in life sciences, there are now a growing share of women and many of those classrooms are now female majority and women achieve top grades in both of these classes. And in biology, their male peers are more likely to recognize them as knowledgeable and want to work with them as study partners. But in physical sciences, even when women get the top grades, men are far less likely to see them as knowledgeable and to want to study them together. And I see this repeating wherever there's a male majority workplace, there tends to be this, you know, uh, men socializing together, men not recognizing women's skills. So I wonder, building on that, do you think there is gender bias in economics today? So first of all, I, I, I'm sure that there's gender bias all over in various ways. So I'm mm -hmm. never going to deny that. But I think one of the great things that's happening is that we're talking about it. And by talking about it, I see the groups that are formed. So our first year students form study groups. And I'm, I am certain that if they had a study group that was just males, that they would look at each other and say, this isn't good. Whereas I think if there was a study group that was all females, they might look at each other and say, whoopee, this is amazing. <laughs> now, it turns out that in our first year classes in economics, for example, when I was a student uh, some time ago, uh, there were um, a, a handful of women 
in the, in the program. So it would have been very hard to allocate us to various study groups. Um, today in, in our first year class, I think we have, it's generally about a third uh, nationwide. And so we get maybe about 35% female. I think our first year class, which is very small this year because of the uh, reduction in, in students that we accepted because of the uh, what was considered to be a financial problem a year ago, which looks like it wasn't a big financial problem right now. But I think that we are actually up to 50% female. But the, 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 that's a long answer. The short answer is that whoopee, we're talking about it and people are aware of it. And I, I really don't think that any of my students who are male would not want a woman in their study group. That said, I wonder to push back a little bit. I think one thing I observe is that in America, there is this, this consciousness and people are cognizant of bias, uh, both in terms of race and gender, and increasingly careful about what other people say, but that doesn't necessarily need, lead to structural or substantive change. So even if you, people change their terminology, change their discourse, or even if they themselves try to be more egalitarian, there are still, there's still, that we might still see bias. So, you know, talking about Heather Sarson's paper, highlighting that female co-authors don't receive the credit. I mean, so that's still going on, right? Absolutely. And um, uh, so there's a lot of cheap talk going around. I think that that's your point, that uh, uh, which, which is why the um, bias tests are so good, because, <laughs> because you have to respond very, very quickly, and your brain is, is telling you to respond in one way, and the other side of your brain is telling you to respond in the other way. But Heather's work is, uh, it is disturbing. There's no question. And what do you think would reduce, so apart from talking about it and being cognizant of it, what do you think would reduce gender bias in economics or any other male majority, potentially hostile culture? So it depends upon where we think the gender bias is coming mm. from. So some so when we began this conversation, some of the gender bias is coming from women themselves eschewing the field because they don't quite understand what the field is about. E economics is, is quite different from many of the other fields in that what people think it's about isn't necessarily what it is about. So yes, it is about the world of finance and, and what we, people call capitalism, but it's also about uh, people's well-being. It's about inequality. It's about health. It's about obesity. Uh, it's it's about behavior. It's it's really an all-encompassing field. So, to the extent that you know that I have seen uh, in my work on undergraduate women in economics that women enter universities thinking that they don't want to major in economics because they don't know what economics is. That's their own inherent bias. Okay. But the other part of the bias here, though, is, uh, is the, the bias of, of individuals in a field against women. And that's, of course, a different type of bias. And how do we reduce that bias? We reduce it by... Um, 
by in some sense assuring those individuals that the the all of the individuals who were brought in who were in underrepresented minority groups are just as good. I have a paper of mine that that is one of my favorites and and it's not very well known. It's called the pollution theory of discrimination. And it's about why uh, for a long time, men have protected various jobs against the entry of women. And this is seen very clearly, for example, in police departments and fire departments over time. And, um, you know, and the reason in this, in the model is that when a woman it's a model of asymmetric information in which nobody knows or people on the outside don't know just how difficult it is to be in a particular profession. They think, you know, being a police officer is difficult. Being a fire uh, officer is, is difficult. I didn't say fireman <laughs> is difficult. Um but it, it could be that there's technological change that impacts these, um, what is needed to be in these fields. And if you see uh, someone who's an underrepresented minority enter, it's a signal that something technologically r reducing has happened in that field. So to the extent that women and underrepresented minorities demonstrate that they are equal then that would get around. So credentializing, for example, is one way of getting around this problem. Can I make a comment about your research? I don't know if you know this, Claudia, but so many of the contributions that you've made, your analysis of the US labor market, are actually ring true when I look at the global history of gender. So your point on pollution, for example, in the 19th century, French printers. They were very, very much careful to police women for entering their profession because they thought that would undermine the status of being a printer. And that was part of it. And there's strong qualitative evidence supporting this. Similarly, if we look at the 1930s in Russia, men really didn't want women to enter, not, part, not because about undercutting them, because they wanted to retain the status of their profession. So the pollution theory is absolutely true. Every single country I look at, I see the golden thesis is replicated. Another example, just to belabor the point, is one of the core arguments in your book is that women have increasingly been able to uh, achieve career and family in parts due to engines of liberation, so washing machines, the pill, and also rising demands for skilled labor. And we also see this in East Asia, where there's been rapid industrialization, rising access to contraceptives, and also white goods. And, the, and so again, East Asia is the exact golden argument. When in, in China, for example, with structural transformation, the gender pay gap amongst professional women, the amongst professionals is now closing. Since 2012, it's been closing. And also really interestingly, Whereas in England and North America, we had the male breadwinner model. There was, you know, a long period in which men were the key earners and women were staying at home. And I, I think in part because there was still so much domestic drudgery and those job queues that were low. A century later, thanks to so many technological advances in East Asia, there was motherhood didn't cause such a dip in employment. And I think that's partly because 
by the time they were ready for the workplace, by the time, by the 1960s, 1970s, technology had advanced so much that they were more able to seize those economic opportunities. So I just wanted to add to the listener who, for, for people who are familiar with your work on the USA, that golden is right across the world. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. So, so there's a, an, a paper that I think is, is at the heart of what you were just saying that I wrote uh, which was really based on the insights of the great Esther Bozerup, who's an amazing scholar. And it's called the U-shaped theory of female labor force participation in uh, history and development. And uh, what happens in history often is what we see in cross-section. But as you pointed out, one of the differences is, for example, historically, the early manufacturing was a real drudgery and dirty and long hours and hot and sweaty and excluded women from for lots of reasons. Whereas in, in, in development, uh, uh, manufacturing is often uh, uh, electrical appliances and it's, it's not as, um, you know, hot and long hours, although it's often long hours. Um, and, and it doesn't exclude women to the same degree. So yes, there, there are lots of parallels between history and development, but technological advance, because it's so rapid, uh, alters the the impact in development absolutely and another there's another paper that just came out last month that again supporting the golden theories um turkey had rapid economic growth after 2012 until 2018 again rising female employment women seized those economic opportunities so turkey for a long time was going on the downward part of the u as agriculture became increasingly capital intensive technologically advanced it shed female labor then women because it's a conservative societies, they was responded weakly to growth. But when growth picked up, boom. Anyway, sorry, just to add that tangent. Uh, okay, right. Um, now let's go back to the USA. Why do you think the gender pay gap varies so much across the USA? To what extent is it due to subnational variation in culture, social conservatism, as opposed to different growth sectors like extractives in some areas? I think there's a combination of, of the two, and I'm glad you've asked this because I was looking at uh, some very recent data put together on state rankings, and there are a bunch of interesting uh, anomalies here. The first is that, yes, it does look as if certain parts of the U.S. South have larger wage gaps than the, the uh, uh, bluer states of the North. Uh, but there are some really interesting anomalies. So yes, a state like Louisiana is towards the bottom, but it's also the case that the state of Washington is also pretty low, meaning the gender gap is very, very wide. However, it, so it is uh, on this list, it's 34th in the US among our states but it's sixth in terms of absolute. So as a woman, I would rather be in the state of Washington, uh, but if I am compared to a man in the state of Washington, uh, I would not wanna be there. I would want to be in Vermont, okay? 
<laughs> but if I'm in Vermont versus Washington, I give up $4,000 a year. So there's complications and the complications are exactly what you said, which is that states differ in what they're producing. So states with what you might call extractive industries or lumber are going to have, or fracking, are going to have the widest differences in earnings between women and men. Uh, states, the state of Washington here, I think, is high for uh, men because it, uh, there are a lot of pretty high income jobs, as well as the fact that it's also a lumber state. Uh, but women are doing awfully well there uh, as well. So, um, so the largest gaps aren't always in places that are paying women actually less. Although we, it, it is the case that just as if you looked across countries, as I know you have, if we look across countries, there are countries that look to be warm and fuzzy and nice. Let me add one other detail here that comes from some very important work by Fran Blau and Larry Kahn, another great economist couple. There are a lot of economist couples. And Fran and Larry, um, uh, some time ago, did something, showed us something that we all should have known, which is that if you take a country like Sweden, it looks like women are doing so much better than men. The gender gap uh, at the time they were writing this was relatively, it was smaller, far smaller than in the U.S. But almost a lot of that was due to the fact that the income structure in Sweden was very narrow. So in fact, if you took the mean woman in Sweden she was at a lower percentile in the male distribution than the mean woman in, and that's a funny term, the mean woman in the U.S. So in some sense, women were doing better in the U.S. than in Sweden relatively, but the entire distribution was just wider. Talking about, I think that's such a great point, but I think there's also an interesting point to be making about distinguishing across between professional and working class women. So for example, uh, there's some research suggesting that in, so in Scandinavia, women are under, well, there are very few women in management and in senior professional roles. So the USA is really leading the pack in terms of women's share of senior management professional roles. There, the USA does very well, but the USA does seem to have a larger gender pay gap for working class people, uh, which may, uh, and, and so I, I wonder why do you think that is? Why are there more women in management in the USA compared to Scandinavia? What is the USA doing right? Well, so some, sometimes putting in the hours uh, gets you a uh, uh, higher position. So I think that part of it is that, that we know that hours of work in uh, countries outside the US um, that there is a much higher fraction of part-time work. And that is also true among professionals. And having part-time work when you're younger uh, needn't 
destroy your chances of rising up in your profession. But it's also the case and something that I find fascinating that individuals who work part time or work low hours when they're younger often don't rev up when they're older for some reason that would be important to investigate. And so because of that, it's not going to be easy to make tenure if you're part-time. It's not going to be easy to make partner if you're part-time. It's not going to be easy to uh, get a big first promotion in management if you're part-time. And we know that European countries, for some good reasons, have a greater ability to work part-time than in the U.S., but it there, there is some price that gets paid. Oh, I see. So in Europe, where female labor force participation has been increasing, that's partly because more women are working part time, but working part time won't actually get you to the top. Yeah, but some, some of the increase in so, you know, the US in the 1990s, was number one in terms of female labor force participation for just about any age group. We're no longer number one, but part of that is because we led in terms of female education and other countries have caught up. And But another part of that is that women in the U.S. Um, don't work part-time as much and, and labor force participation does not scale by hours. So if we looked instead, if we rank countries in terms of the fraction of the workforce, male, female, working full-time, the US would be number two or number three. Why, why is it that US women don't work uh, part-time? It's, a, it's, it's a, a good question, and it may have to do with various uh, country policies. So the country, one country that I know a bit about is the Netherlands. And the Netherlands has a uh, regulation, legislation that was passed that uh, if, if, and this was passed to increase women's labor force participation, and it succeeded in that. And the legislation was, if you're, let's say you're an admin in a firm, and you're working five days a week, and you have um, a birth and you want to cut back, or you have some reason that you want to cut back to four days, you are allowed to do that. And your salary at that point is going to be uh, uh, proportionate. So you're going to have a linear relationship, whatever hourly wage implicitly you had, or if your salary, if you were salaried, you, you would just get uh, four-fifths of it. So uh, that's a, a case. And then if individuals then want to work three days, they could work three days. And if you look at hours, first of all, hours are, <laughs> are smaller in the Netherlands for everyone, but they're extremely low for women who are employed. Uh, the, so for women, they're uh, the the mean is is in is in the twenties. It's very oh, wow. very low. Oh wow! Do you think that might reflect Europeans? Okay, to what extent could this reflect Europeans' greater preference for leisure? 
or as opposed to sort of government legislate? I mean, is it yeah. that Americans just love to work or, or, or want to maximize their earnings as much as they possibly can? Is it like cultural preference? Is it that taxes are lower and so you might as well work as long as you possibly can? It seems like a, an interesting cultural difference that it's not just about women being more likely to work part, uh, full time in the US, but that's part of a broader phenomenon in which the US workers work longer hours, right? Those, those seem like part of the same thing to me. So let's go back to 1831, the yes. <laughs> Alexis comes to the US uh, to uh, examine uh, uh, American, the American prison system. <laughs> And he travels across the U.S. and tells us a tremendous amount about who we are. And one of the things that he says is, uh, he says, uh, I'll put it in modern terms, Americans are workaholics. <laughs> but the reason that he said is because in America, if you work long hours, you can rise up, you know, straight out of Hamilton. You but can so, rise is, up. So, but, 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 but I thought there are, there, there are questions about the extent of, so, what, you think there's more social mobility in the USA than Europe? At that, in 1831? Oh, no, I mean, now, today. Sure. Could, that, could that explain, could that explain the differences in ours? I, mean? I, I thought you would have liked this notion that it was traditions that were something that was sort of in the bones of, Americans from early on that somehow we have a system that's so open and and it's not an elite aristocratic system. The elite, the aristocrats, an individual in a in an aristocratic society, the best thing that you can do is have leisure. <laughs> Whereas in in America, it's not an aristocratic society. And so you can, you can work hard and you can rise up and you can get the fruits of your labor. I think that certainly seems true for professional women that they are working longer hours and they're much more likely to make it into management or senior yeah. roles in the USA compared so, to Europe. So yeah. my, my colleague, Dick mm. Freeman, some time ago wrote uh, uh, a paper. Uh, there's a, a co-author. Um, in, in which he uh, he examined uh, this issue, and and it is the case that Americans work longer hours. Now, one of the possibilities here, he puts the blame on inequality in America uh, for greater hours. Uh, there is a question about about cause and effect, but but this is <laughs> this is not an issue that we have solved yet. We know it's there. I can say de Tocqueville told us about it in 1831 and Richard Freeman wrote about it in the 1990s. But I don't think we have a, a perfect answer why it is that Americans are still workaholics relative to most Northern European countries. Because I think what uh, your book focuses on the rise, uh, the success of thriving women professional women, uh, college graduates in the US, you know, they're thriving in the professions, they're increasingly closing their gaps in management. But I think that that long hours culture seems particularly difficult for working class women who can't afford childcare and who are then more outcompeted by men. And some analysis of the US labor market by Joanne Duran French suggests that it's working class women leaving the labor market as they're yeah, being but, pushed But out. in the U.S., mm. 
hours of work is less for uh, lower educated workers. I mean, that's one of the big switches that it was once the case that, you know, lower educated workers worked more hours than higher educated workers. And now higher educated workers work demonstrably longer hours than lower educated. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Okay. I have a new question. Okay. So you argue that flexible, substitutable work would reduce the gender pay gap. Why, looking before COVID, why did that not happen? But it did happen in certain places. So we can, uh, in fact, one of the one of the challenges that I set myself was to figure out where uh, there were changes in the workplace so that, I mean, co- companies, you know, we, we have a profit system and companies would like to uh, save on um, high amounts that they pay to, to workers. So if, if a company knew that if it had a certain amount of redundancy in their labor, so that um, if, if I wanted to take a little bit of time off, I could do it and they could slot someone in uh, uh, versus if I wanted to take off a little bit of time, I would say to, to them, uh, you have to just pay me a tremendous amount more to stay on this job because the hours are so inflexible. So I was looking for cases in which this this happened, and a lot of them are in the field of medicine. So uh, group practices. So they're you know that to the extent that these are very very high paid professionals, and um, to the extent that a physician is is going to say, I am not going to be on call every evening or every weekend you would want to have a certain amount of redundancy and a certain amount of ability to trade, um, uh, to trade places. And that has happened um, in, in many different areas. It's also the case that uh, in veterinary medicine, for example, I found it um, fascinating that um, you know, there was a time not that long ago when if you're uh, pet, let's call it Muffy. If Muffy got sick at 11 at night, you would call up your veterinarian and see if your veterinarian could come in. Uh, now, if you call up your veterinarian, you get a message that tells you exactly where the regional animal hospital is. Regional animal hospitals are now all over America and probably all over Europe as well. And what they're doing is they're making the work of the uh, uh, veterinarian in the small animal clinic to be predictable, to be a, maybe not a nine to five job, but not a rush on call weekend vacation job. And that's exactly what you wrote about with pharmacy, for example, the rise of these commercial and organizational technological shifts mean that when work, any worker can work in CVS, for example, any pharmacist can work in CVS, they can access the client's records and they can substitute for each other. So that's the really important part of closing the gender pay gap. And COVID, to some extent, has 
spurred similar organizational and technological shifts that there's this growth in report in remote work and both employers see it as beneficial in saving on building costs and more workers want it because they've got now a, a taste for working from home and they enjoy it so we now see that there this shift right and that that could benefit women yeah it could benefit uh, lots of people and my hope is that it doesn't just benefit women the last thing we want is a work from home female ghetto, uh, because it's always going to be the case uh, that there are inherent biases and in the person you get to know, the person that you can really look in their eyes, the person you can tap on the back, hopefully only on the back, uh, is the person you learn to trust, uh, is the person whose name comes to your mind when you're asked, you know, who should get that contract, who should get that uh, client, uh, whose paper should be published, and so on. Uh, so it's it's very important that we do not create a work from home female ghetto. On the other hand, <laughs> it, to the extent that this reduces the need for uh, on call rush weekend vacation work it's going to disproportionately benefit individuals with caring responsibilities. I think that's such a great point that you make about the person who you instinctively think of. Uh, and there's some there's a new book called Gaslighted, which is on the US extractives industry. It came out last month. And they talk about uh, men in big oil and gas going to play golf together, spending time together, fraternizing together and just getting to know each other. You know, hey, Jeff is a great guy. Hey, Jeff, help me out with this. And the more time that Jeff and Bob spend time together, they get to know each other, trust each other. So when Jeff has an idea, Bob is like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, he, that's a great guy. Let's go with that. But when a woman comes in with a sort of seat of the pants contribution or idea, they've spent less time together. They don't have that rapport. They're not so confident in her judgment. So it's not that they're necessarily gender biased, but they don't have that same strong personal trust and connection. So it's not saying anything about the person that they're an evil person or a bad person or necessarily sexist to women in general, but without those strong socializing interpersonal connections, there's more of a questioning skepticism about her judgment. And so I think that's such an important point. Yeah, and let, let's hope that uh, that uh, I, I see a lot of young people and I see a lot of young people who, uh, for whom there's far more gender fluidity and far less of the uh, sort of locker room sent sentiments that, that you are in some sense discussing. So I, I found it uh, wonderful that, um, so I go to the gym here and uh, uh, so that's sort of my locker room, of course. And generally, I don't see anyone in the locker room that that's like the old fashioned locker room where the guys get together and pat each other on the back and talk about various clients and everything. But it turns out that I went to the locker room uh, before COVID and I met someone from the administration who uh, we would then whisper various things about. So, uh, so yes, things, it, it is the case that when women were excluded, women are excluded from the locker room, but hopefully, you know, we're getting our own locker room. 
I want to ask, so when we look at pharmacy, when we look at COVID, even when we look at the rise of women having career and family, so many of these changes have just come about because of skill-based technological change or the pandemic thrown things. It's not really, you know, men only opened their firms, for example, as you wrote about in the 1920s, 1930s, only removed those marriage bars when when business was so great that they needed women's labor. It was never it's ne- when I look at when I look at your book it's never the case that women advocated and then male managers had this enlightened self-interest to make their workplaces more female friendly. So many of these dynamics came, seem to come about through commercial shifts. Yeah, but remember that the biggest change in marriage bars was in a profession that was uh, 90% female and remained 90% female. So the reason for marriage bars there was not that men were protecting their jobs it's it was quite different oh yes that's a good point okay so you you only need well so you do, uh employers might not want the married women but the non-married women are fine yes yeah i mean the 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 they had a, a lot of uh single women and so they didn't have to uh, oddly enough uh, the the main reason that one can think of is that these school boards didn't want to deal with the husband who came in and said you're not paying my my wife enough that 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 the women would have a strong agent for them whereas the single women were were more compliant but again i mean this is an example that those those marriage bar i mean that, that those marriage bars were removed only subject to commercial pressures so to some extent it's the market or technology which has driven so much of women's gains in the workplace. I right. mean we can credit feminist activism for other things like women's participation in politics, abortion, reproductive rights, feminist activism is important. But if we look at the world of work, so many of the gains seems to be due to commerce, technology, etc. Absolutely. Let me just say one other thing about yes. marriage bars which is that um black women yes this uh, is a good example teachers, yes. um were married in, in the period in which they were marriage bars, uh, and we don't have a lot of thick information about exactly where they were, uh, but we do know that from the census that Black women who were teachers, and they were, of course, in the before uh, the 1950s, 60s, they were all in uh, segregated schools, they were a dis- they were married to a far far greater extent than were white women and so marriage bars didn't really bind in the south uh, to the extent that they had them they some of these districts may not have had them uh, and of course the one of the reasons was that it was the 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 fraction of women who were um black women who were college graduates was not that high so so it's exactly as alice said that that it was essentially supply and demand if you reduce the the supply even more you are going to uh, uh not have enough teachers here's a question to what extent so the book is on the rise of women having career and family to what extent do you think the rise of women has exacerbated male underperformance in education caused male delinquency adhd 
You know, her, her gender equality made it tough to be a man as we saturate the airwaves with our estrogen. Are we causing problems? Um, so, uh, so we know today that it's, it's become a very big deal that women are, they've sort of, um, sort of crossed uh, in certain measures, the 60% line, uh, but it's been creeping up quite a bit in, in terms of the fraction of college graduates who are female. It turns out that that's been going on for some time. In fact, uh, you know, it, it, it rose from the 1950s to the 60s, and the crossover point is, is 1980 uh, is 50% of college graduates or college attendees who are female. And I've often, uh, um, I'm often asked about why that's the case. And, uh, and I note that when high schools were first uh, proliferating uh, in the US in the early part of the 20th century, that in every state of the US from uh, the early part of the 20th century to the beginnings of the Great Depression, uh, female uh, graduates of high schools in every state were a larger fraction of the total they were more than 50% of the total. So there's something else going on than, than, than something about uh, women in, in college. It goes, it goes further back. And so if anything, one, one then asks, wh why didn't women continue in, in college in the, uh, in the 20s, 30s, 40s? Why did it take so long for them to become 50%? And that may have to do with family bias. But in fact, uh, for, for reasons that my friends in psychology can answer better than I, uh, women mature earlier, they concentrate better, uh, they, are, um, they have less ADHD, they have fewer <clears throat> behavioral problems. We know neurologically that boys are more challenged and girls have uh, autoimmune disorders, boys have neurological disorders. We know that there are gender differences that are uh, more biological uh, and, and may influence the ability of individuals to concentrate and to work to, to be able to, um, uh, you know, the, the degree to which they can be persistent uh, to take risks, et cetera. Thank you. Okay, I have one final question, Claudia. One final one. What do you think that we don't know about gender, but that you wish we did? What What are your questions about anything that you'd like to know? If PhD students are looking for ideas, what do you suggest? I suggest that they go to your website. Because <laughs> <laughs> to me, those are the deepest and most fundamental questions which have to do with social interactions, the role of history, the role of traditions and social norms, the role of, of, of how individuals live together and the influence of the older generation on the younger generation. We see this played out, for example, in, uh, in East Asia, uh, where there's been rapid economic change, rapid educational change, and we see that um, that women are 
who have advanced degrees and who are professionals are not just marrying later, but not getting married, not having kids. Why, you know, the, the fact that fertility has dropped almost worldwide, except for sub-Saharan Africa, is telling us a lot about women taking more uh, command. It may also tell us something about wanting to have more quality children than quantity children. But I think much of this is about the interaction between uh, technological change and social norms. Claudia, thank you so much. I want to say one more thing for the listeners that you really must buy the book. One, because of the brilliance ideas. And let me crudely summarize, let me crudely summarize just to finally pitch it to the listener. So the big argument, and you must correct me if I get this wrong, Claudia, is that now for the first time really in human history, women have careers and families. And this has been enabled maybe by four key drivers. One is the skill-biased technological change, the rising demand, and women have increasingly seized those opportunities thanks to engines of liberation of white goods, reducing domestic drudgery, the pill, the quiet revolution, and also you mentioned divorce, which means that marriage is less, uh, less good insured. So now women have increasingly achieved careers and families, but they are thwarted and impeded by men's greater ability, greater choice to seize long hours, which are well-paying and they prefer, and women are increasingly staying at home with, well, women are staying at home with their children, but we could close this with more substitutable, flexible work, which is increasingly happening as a result of COVID pandemic. That's the, that's the book in 200 words, maybe. Sort of. <laughs> sort of. Okay. And everyone, please, and I also, the other reason why I strongly recommend the book is it is incredibly beautifully written. It is honestly the most well-written book, uh, economics book, economic social science book. It's really a work of art in how that you pair your craftsmanship of the sentence, the prose is glorious. Totally. It really is beautiful. I don't know how you, how you learn to write like that, but it's glorious. So thank you very, very much. It's from the head and the heart. (laughs) Professor Claudia Golding, thank you so much. And thank you so much, Alice. It's been a pleasure.